John chapter 2, um, we are starting a new series of sermons uh, as we get ready for Easter. Uh, we Last week I preached a, uh, a final sermon on the Psalms. I actually have one more sermon on the Psalms um, on contentment. If you're like looking for the ending to that series, because it kind of ended abruptly, I'm going to be preaching that sermon two months from now at Union Rescue Mission. So I know that that's, that might be a drive for you, things like that. If you really want to hear the end of that sermon series, I'm going to be preaching that at Union Rescue Mission in a couple months at the Tuesday Night Live. We might get a recording of that. I don't know. Put it up on a podcast. But um, if you're looking for the conclusion for that series, that's there. This morning we're going to be reading from John chapter 2. We're looking at a new series and we're looking at this first miracle of Jesus from John chapter 2, verse 1 to 11. This is a reading of God's word. On the third day there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. The mother of Jesus was there. Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. They filled it up to the brim. He said, now draw out and draw out some and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first. When the people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. Amen. So reading of God's word, please join me in a word of prayer. Father, thank you for your sacred word, which uh, through centuries has transformed the lives of people. Thank you for the gospel of John, which is meant to open up our eyes to you. So I pray that, Lord, your spirit, as has been in the past, will now powerfully work through the preaching of your word to open eyes, to enliven hearts, to draw wanderers back to you, to bring us to the light of your glory. So teach us and Speak to us now. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Today we're starting a new sermon, a series, like I mentioned. It's called From Mess to Masterpiece. From Mess to Masterpiece. And we're looking at all of these encounters that Jesus has with people who are in a tight spot, who are in, whose lives are messy, uh, whose lives are, have spun out of control, whether they know it or not. It's a series of sermons that's going to lead us up to Easter. Easter's only three weeks away, if you didn't know that. And we're looking at a series of sermons, especially designed to help people understand the glory of who Jesus is. Uh, years ago, Philip Yancey wrote a book called The Jesus I Never Knew. Um, it's a tremendous book. And in it, he talks about his own experience with Jesus. He said he grew up in a very fundamentalistic church. And he grew up thinking God was kind of angry. God was hard to please. Uh, God was not happy with his life. A lot of rules, a lot of regulations, a lot of not living up to it. So he said he left the church. And only years later, as he was an adult, did he read the scripture for himself. And as he read the scripture, a new picture of Jesus started to emerge to him. 
he began to see a Jesus like he said he never knew about. That Jesus was not just filled with uh, holiness, which he was, but he was tremendously compassionate. Uh, he loved to befriend outcasts, prostitutes, people whose lives were out of control. And he loved them and he forgave them. And a new Jesus began to emerge to him, a Jesus that was filled with joy. And throughout the series, we want to look at this joy of Jesus. We want to look at the freedom of what it means to know him. We want to rediscover, if you will, the Jesus of the scriptures. And starting this morning, we wanted to invite you on a journey to see that. And we want to encourage you to ask your friends who might have this other picture of Jesus to discover again this Jesus who is filled with beauty. John said he's, Jesus is full of grace and truth. Grace and truth. And this morning we're going to start on this journey by looking at this first miracle of Jesus from John chapter 2. At this chapter we're going to look at uh, who Jesus is, his mission, and his power to change lives. So as we look at this story, we're going to look at three things. Our need for Jesus, uh, the power of Jesus to change lives, namely, and how that happens, which is the third thing, the love of Jesus. So the first thing is our need for Jesus uh, we're looking at the Gospel of John. John was written by an apostle, the Apostle John. He calls himself a beloved, the beloved, the disciple that Jesus loved, the beloved disciple. He was so close to Jesus. He walked with him, saw everything that he d- did. He was loved by Jesus. And he writes this story, uh, which is a biography of Jesus. And he loves to highlight everything about Jesus which uh, is profound, which is beautiful, which is life-changing. The Gospel of John starts with this magnificent prologue in which Jesus, John starts the Gospel by saying that the Word, the eternal Word, became flesh. He pitched a tent. Uh, He took on flesh and we beheld his glory. Uh, In the beginning of John, John chapter 1, Jesus begins his ministry. He starts... uh, collecting disciples. So his first disciples in verse 35 are Andrew and Peter, their brothers. They start to follow Jesus. Next up, Nathaniel and Philip. They start to see something of Jesus. They leave it all behind. They want to follow Jesus too. And after Jesus has his first disciples, he's ready to go. He's ready to start his ministry. He's ready to uh, kick off his ministries. How will he start? You know, we're in a season where a lot of people are announcing their candidacy for president. They have a big press conference. Uh, They want to tell as many people as possible their intentions. How would Jesus start his ministry? How would he let the world know who he is? And what we see is a very surprising thing. Not as you would expect. All throughout the Gospel of John, Jesus is not as you would expect. In John chapter 2, He begins his public ministry, comes out, tells everyone about himself as a guest at a wedding. It's an interesting spot. In verse chapter 2, verse 1 to 2, it says, On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. The mother of Jesus was there. Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples. Wedding that Jesus attended was probably a family wedding. We know that because Mary, the mother of Jesus, was there. It was near his hometown. This was probably uh, a relative of his. And it's a curious thing. 
You know, Jesus is the savior of the world. He's announcing himself to everyone. You would think that Jesus was a little bit too busy to go to the wedding of his cousin Sarah. You know, you think he'd be a little too busy for that. Like, Sarah, I got love for you, but man, I'm the king. And I'm about here to save the world and to announce the world who I am. You think Jesus is too busy for his cousin Sarah's wedding, but he's not. In fact, Jesus loves celebrations. You know, one of the things that I love about Jesus is that he was never too much in a hurry to be with people and to celebrate with people. Jesus had joy. Uh, Jesus loved to celebrate and to live and participate in the lives of his people. So he's there at the wedding, and at this wedding, uh, something goes wrong. It says the wine runs out. Now, weddings in the first century uh, were lasted uh, for a week. It was a, it was a huge celebration. Uh, wine was critical to weddings. Uh, not because people love to get drunk. Wine was very an essential part of any celebration. Wine was very diluted in the first century. Uh, it was used as a means, as very a central aspect of a celebration. So here is a quote in the first century people used. There is no rejoicing without wine. There's no rejoicing without wine. Psalm 104.15 says, Wine gladdens the heart of men. It wasn't so much about drunkenness, but about celebration. Wine was critical to that celebration. To run out of wine, especially at the beginning or the midpoint of a wedding, would be a disaster. It would be a disaster. It would be like going to a club, going to a club without any music. Uh, they would probably end the celebration early if the wine ran out. That's how critical it was to that celebration. It was a crisis. The couple would, in a shame culture, that couple would forever be known as that couple. That couple. You know, where that wine ran out. Remember that couple? It followed them wherever they went. That couple there. And what would they do? Uh, In the Gospel of John, everything is deeply symbolic. Wine running out was a symbol of a lot of different things that are happening in our, in our world, in our hearts. Number one, the wine running out represented the problem of life. And what John is saying in that gospel, setting Jesus up, is that we live in a world, in a time, in our life, where the wine always runs out in our life, doesn't it? Uh, the celebration always ends. No matter how great the party is, the wine's going to run out. In fact, the better the party is, the faster the wine's going to run out. You know, the better the wine is, the faster it's going to go. People are going to want to drink it. And it's a metaphor for this whole idea in life. You know, weddings are supposed to be the pinnacle of your life. It's supposed to be your grand celebration, your grand moment. You spend so much money on it. You plan so hard for it. And even at that place, which is supposed to be the best place, disaster can strike. Crisis can hit. You know, uh, my wife and I, we just celebrated our 11th anniversary, our 11th anniversary, and we were talking about our wedding. And one of the things about our wedding is uh, the day of our wedding, we got married at a, a beautiful old Presbyterian church in Hollywood. The day of our wedding, the lights went off. The power went off from the whole block. There are like no lights for our wedding. 
It's like, what is that? The, the whole wedding reception and also the banquet, which is also at that church, there was no, there was no power. <laughs> there was no lights. I was talking to a wedding planner who plans weddings, and she said, every wedding, something's going to happen wrong. It's just a matter of what's going to happen wrong. Every wedding, something's going to happen wrong. The wine running out of the wedding is a microcosm of life. That in our life, in our world, something always goes wrong. Uh, the wine is always going to run out. Uh, the party is going to stop. Uh, things are going to go sideways. And it speaks to the human condition. That life is so fragile. That joy is so fleeting. The second thing that the, uh, this wedding represents in, this, in terms of the problems of life is the problem of religion. As Jesus prepares for this first miracle, John is very careful to point out where this water is coming from. In verse 6, this is what he says. Now, there were six stone jars of water for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. John points out that the, where the water comes from was, this, was used for the, there were stone jars for the rites of purification. In the Old Testament, uh, whenever you sinned, uh, you had to get clean. You had to get water and you had to purify your body, your hands, your body with this water. Uh, in the time of Jesus, they extrapolated this tradition to be all kinds of ritualistic. So that when you got up, you need to be cleansed ritually. When you went into the temple, you also had to clean your body, your hands. That it was a constant barrage of rituals. Jesus is pointing out to the system. He says it right after, right after this event. He goes into the temple and he cleans it out. He upends it because in Jesus' time, religion has, had become this very ritualistic thing where people had to do all of these legalistic, ritualistic things in order to feel right with God. But Jesus says throughout the gospel that no, you know, these, relig- these rituals are very hollow. They can't, you have to constantly do these rituals. And even though they might cleanse your body, they can't cleanse your spirit. You're going to still feel guilty, weighed down. It's going to feel dutiful. And Jesus is criticizing religion. All the outward ways we use to make ourselves feel better, to make, a, make ourselves feel right. Jesus is saying that's empty. Uh, the wedding represents two empty dynamics. One is trying to celebrate without God. And Jesus says, well, John is saying, well, the wine's going to run out. You're trying to live life without God. You're trying to celebrate without something deeper. John says, well, that, that wine's going to run out in your life at some point. You know, at some point, the party's going to stop and the hangover's going to begin. At some point, even in your greatest moments, crisis will hit. But secondly, religion's not going to help either. Religion and doing all these outward ways and outward things to feel God and to be forgiven by God, that's not going to work either. It's just outward. It's not going to give you the peace that you need. So the crisis, the wine running out, it sets us up for the second point, which is the true power, the power of Jesus. That the power of Jesus is what we actually need. Jesus enters into this troubling situation. And Mary, the mother of Jesus, speaks to Jesus. And they have a pretty interesting dialogue. It says in verse 3, When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They had no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? 
My hour has not yet come. It's an interesting phrase, and I think if you say it the wrong way, it seems like Jesus is being very disrespectful, like, woman? But that's probably not how it was. <laughs> it was more like, woman. You know, it was something like that. The tone, it has to do with the tone. Uh, woman was actually a very respectful way for a man to address his mother, uh, but it still seems a little off. And it probably is. It still seems a little bit off, right? And Jesus says, we're going to return to this idea. My hour has not yet come. We're going to return to that. But Jesus is saying, it's not my time. It's not about me. This is not my thing. It's not my problem. And we're going to return to that idea. But Mary, I want to point this out, persists. She doesn't give up. Uh, She does not give up on Jesus doing something about this problem. In fact, she insists that Jesus act and she tells the servers to listen to Jesus because he's going to do something. Mary knows that Jesus is from God. He's not ordinary. She doesn't know the whole glory of Jesus, but she knows that he is from God. And Mary is persistent. And all throughout the Gospels, what Jesus himself says is that whenever you have a crisis, keep knocking, keep asking, keep being persistent, because God will eventually answer you. God will eventually answer you. And that's what happens here. Mary is persistent, like Jesus, do something. And Jesus acts. He springs into action. After Mary's persistent in verse 7, he tells the servants to fill the stone jars with water, fill them up to the brim. Uh, the servants, they fill it up to the brim, they draw out the liquid, and Jesus says, give it to the master of ceremonies. And the master of the feast was an expert in wine. He knew the difference. I have no idea the difference between wine. Like two buck chuck and the most expensive wine, they taste the same to me. They're about the same. But the master of the feast, well, he was an expert. He took the wine, swished it in his mouth, spit it out, and he told the bride and groom, this is the, most, this is the vintage wine. Uh, you saved the best for last at this moment. Most people, they have the best wine first when people's palate are cleansed or sharp. They, can't, they can tell the difference. But this couple has saved the best for last. Jesus has turned water not just into any kind of wine, but vintage wine. What is this miracle about? Uh, What is uh, right at the end of the gospel of uh, this this story, John, in verse 11, said it's a sign. It's not a miracle. It's a sign. It's a signpost to something greater. All of Jesus' miracles in the gospel of John are signs. They're telling you something about who Jesus is. What does, this, what does this miracle tell us about Jesus? Number one, it tells us that Jesus is the Messiah. You know, in the Old Testament, one of the signs that the Messiah has come is overflowing wine. A great feast and overflowing wine. Both Jeremiah and Hosea say, when the Messiah comes, this, we're going to be flooded with this wine and a feast. And when Jesus turns the water into wine, he's saying that I'm the Messiah. This new wine, this new kingdom is breaking in right now. I'm him. Secondly, what Jesus is saying is that he's come to bring us true joy. We said that wine is represented joy. It's represented celebration. Jesus comes into a religious system of, of rituals, 
of law keeping, of duty, of condemnation, of guilt. And he says, no, that's not what I come to bring to bring you to. I've come to bring you liberation. I've come to bring you freedom. I come to bring you joy. I've come to turn your duty into delight. Uh, when, when you think about the miracle, uh, think about the, uh, the extraordinary uh, nature of it. You know, it says, and John specifies, that each of the jugs carried 30 gallons of water. There are six jugs. There's six jars of wine. That's 180 gallons of vintage wine. That would have lasted them, of course, through the feast. And Jesus is saying that I have come to bring you overflowing joy. I've come to give you a joy that will never run out. It will never run out. It will always grow and grow and never leave you wanting. Jesus has come to bring us that joy. The French Jesuit priest, uh, uh, Pierre de Chardin, said this, joy is the infallible sign of the presence of God. He says joy, the sign, the sign that Jesus is really there, Really present, he says, joy is the sign of the kingdom. That when you have it, you know that God is present. Jesus has come to bring us that joy. And the final thing is this, that Jesus has come uh, to change us from the inside out in a profound and meaningful way. He has come to turn that which is basic, that flat water, into something beautiful, something that is extraordinary. And throughout the Gospel of John, the next two stories Jesus tells is about how he can change lives. John chapter 3, Jesus encounters a man who is, his name is Nicodemus. He's a ruler, he's powerful, he's wealthy, he's religious, he has all the credentials. And Jesus tells him, you're so lost. You know, you're religious, you're wealthy, you're powerful, but you're so far from the kingdom. In fact, you have to be born again. Your whole life has to change. John chapter 4, Jesus encounters a woman who seems to be the very opposite. She's a woman. She's not empowered. She is considered immoral. She's been married five times. She's a social outcast, the opposite of Nicodemus. And Jesus says to her, you're actually very close to the kingdom. You're so close that all you need is need, and you have that. You're so close to the kingdom of God. Jesus covers her shame, forgives her, heals her. She's changed instantly. And what Jesus is saying is that my mission is to change lives. Notice that, uh, that John chapter 3 and 4 represent how God changes lives. And God works differently in different people's lives. John chapter 3, Nicodemus actually doesn't profess any kind of faith. He meets Jesus at night. He's ashamed. Uh, when Jesus says you have to be born again, John, uh, Nicodemus actually doesn't have a response to that. We have to wait till the very end of the Gospel of John till we see Nicodemus again. What is he doing? He's claiming the body of Jesus from the cross. He's out and open. He says, this is my Lord, this is my King. It takes Nicodemus seemingly years to change. John chapter 4, the woman at the well changes instantly. That day, that conversation, she turns from a skeptic to a witness. She tells the whole town about Jesus. And it tells you that sometimes change is really quick. Sometimes it takes a lifetime. But to know, to be patient with God. God is faithful. You might be, it might take years for God to really be at work in your life. It might be this morning.
The second thing about this miracle that tells us about change is sometimes change is behind the scenes. You know, one of the interesting things about this miracle is that most everybody at the wedding did not know a miracle happened. Think about that. The master of the feast, when he tastes the wine, all he thinks is this couple, they saved the best wine for last. That's amazing. That's what he thought. He didn't know a miracle happened. All the guests who were there at that wedding, they didn't know a miracle happened. They just thought, wow, this wine is great. That's all they thought. The only people who knew that a miracle had happened was Jesus' disciples, Mary, and the servers. Those were the only people who knew. What does that tell us? It tells us that sometimes God does extraordinary miracles, but so often we don't see it. It's behind the scenes. You know, sometimes God is profoundly working in the lives and in the places around you, but we're blind to it. We don't know that God is working. Sometimes God is working in our lives and we can't see it. We don't really know God is working in our lives in a powerful way. And we have to say, God, this season, open up my eyes to see your miracles around me. To see, God, you are powerfully at work in the lives of people around me, in my circumstances, in my life. God, help me to see you're doing miracles. You're powerfully changing me. Give me eyes to see that and believe that. God is faithfully, powerfully, even behind the scenes, changing lives. That's his power. Final thing is this. Well, how do we experience that power? You know, how do we experience that power of God to transform our lives? And the final thing is that we can experience and be changed by God in Jesus by experiencing his love. You know, one of the reasons why Jesus is at a wedding and he reveals himself at a wedding is that it tells us about who Jesus is and what he has come to do. At the best place Jesus can think of that can explain his mission and his purpose is at a wedding. That's interesting. Uh, one interesting thing in the Gospel of John, this happens in chapter 3, uh, right afterwards, right after the scene in Cana. John the Baptist, who first introduces Jesus, says and refers to Jesus as the groom. It's an interesting title. He says, I'm like in the, the party. I'm the groomsman at Jesus' wedding. Jesus is the groom. The Gospel of John, Jesus is the groom. It's an interesting idea. And one of the ideas at the wedding in Cana is that Jesus, this is the mission of Jesus. He's not just come uh, to forgive us. He's not just come to rescue us. For sure, those things are true. But he's also come to be so intimate with us that he's come to unite us to himself. In, in the, uh, the letters in the New Testament, Paul the apostle says that Jesus Christ uh, is the groom and the church is his bride. The mission of Jesus is nothing less than to forgive us, to heal us, to make us beautiful so that we would be his bride. We would be his people. But that love that Jesus had for us would be a costly love. It would be a costly sacrifice. And that explains the the, the terse interaction Jesus has to his mother. Remember, he says, woman, my hour has not yet come. You know, Jesus is at his wedding, and, you know, what does he think about at, his, at this wedding? Jesus is thinking about his own wedding. He's thinking about his own love for his bride, but he's also thinking about the cost, what that would cost him, that he would have to be cursed by God his Father. Uh, he says, my hour has not yet come. The hour in the Gospel of John always refers to the hour of Jesus' death. 
So in John 7, verse 30, it says, So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. The hour in the Gospel of John is always the hours of his death. And at this wedding, Jesus is thinking about the weight of, of dying for his bride, the church. And that weight is heavy on him. And he says to his mother, I'm not ready for that yet. Not yet. It's not my hour. But we know that Jesus in the final hour does die. His, his blood is spilt out for his bride. And you know what changes us, the power to change your life is the power of knowing Jesus' love for you, knowing the weight of his sacrifice for you, and that is the power to transform your life. I love that I said this at the very beginning. John, the apostle, referred to himself as the disciple that Jesus loved. The disciple, and his last letters in 1st, 2nd, 3rd John are all about love. And a secret to John's life is he knew that he was loved by Jesus. And the secret to our life of having joy and delight in God is to know that we are so loved by Jesus. We are the beloved. We are so loved in God. Uh, Jesus has so much love for us that we are his bride, that he has paid the ultimate cost in pouring out his life for us. And that is the way that our lives change. As we close, I want to close with some practical applications. You know, the water turned into wine. What does that mean very practically in our life? And the first thing is, uh, we, we talked about this idea of the wine running out in our lives. And the idea is that the wine will always run out in our lives. You know, we're always, even if we're in Christ, we're always going to experience pain and heartbreak and heartache. And the application is trust God in those moments when the wine runs out. Uh, trust him that he will weave those things into a greater plan. Uh, last year, I read a story in the Seattle Times. I think I've told this story once before about a couple. And she was engaged to be married. Uh, she had set up the whole wedding. She had paid for the, uh, the banquet, the caterers, the flowers. The guests were all invited. Two days before, her fiancé abruptly canceled the wedding. He says he could not do it. Uh, he had cold feet. He didn't think it was right. And of course, the bride was heartbroken by, by that. Uh, but she also knew that uh, she had already paid for so much of the wedding. The musicians were coming. The caterer. Uh, the venue. They were, they were all reserved. Uh, her father volunteered at a local shelter. That shelter was called Mary's Place. It housed homeless families. So in the midst of her pain and heartbreak, two days before, she had a plan. And she told her father that, no, we're actually still going to have a celebration. And I'm going to invite everyone from Mary's house uh, to this banquet. Uh, Mary's Place worked with a local salon, and they all the staff raided their closets so that everyone... At that place, they got their hair done, their nails done. And that night, they had an epic celebration. Everyone in that house ate and feasted and danced. And they turned that night into something in many ways more beautiful. Uh, One of the uh, men that took part of that banquet uh, had come with his family. They arrived in Seattle with their nine-year-old son. And they had a promise of a job that never materialized. 
The family was homeless for a few days before they found Mary's place where they were uh, found housing. They started to find a job. And they were at that celebration with their son, having the time of their life. And they interviewed him, and this is what he said. He says, it, it takes a big heart to give away to other people everything your heart was in. He says, it, it, it takes a big heart uh, to give people everything your heart was in. And that's a situation where a woman, this bride, the wine had run out. It was a point zero in her life, and she gave her heartbreak to God. She gave it to other people, and she said, God, would you redeem it? In this whole series, we're going to talk about people's lives who've spun out of control, and yet they offer that to God, their heartbreak, their dreams that were broken. Uh, next week, we're going to look at a woman who's been married five times. She had given up on marriage or romance or love. And we, we see how God can weave these beautiful stories into our lives. By the way, that wedding where the lights went out at my wedding, uh, uh, what happened was that the staff brought out candles into the sanctuary. And some people came up to me afterwards and said, this was the most beautiful and intimate wedding I've ever been a part of. <laughs> I just said, thank you. <laughs> I didn't tell them that the lights went out. They, had to, they didn't figure that out. And it was God weaving a story. Finally, the final point is God always saves his best for last. You know, at that wedding, we talked about this idea that God's, that the bridegroom saves his best for last. And that's always a story in God's, in our lives, that God always saves his best thing for last. The banquet, there is a beautiful banquet and the Bible always tells us that the end time is going to be a banquet. It's a celebration. It's the marriage of the Lamb. That's what Revelation calls it. Heaven is going to be a celebration. Uh, it's going to be flowing with wine. It's going to be overflowing with the presence and the beauty of God. And that's going to be the last thing. No matter what kind of mess we feel that we're in right now, God's going to save his best for last. The last it's always going to be beautiful. Uh, grace always bats last. Uh, the best things are always yet to come. The most beautiful surprises will always await God's people. And that is the hope of every believer, that we live in a time where the kingdom of God is breaking in, but it's still not yet. But the hope is we will experience that beauty and that healing and that masterpiece at the end time, would you go journey with God through that? Would you ask God to make your mess into his masterpiece? Rejoice in that love of God that is present for us in Christ Jesus. Please join me in prayer. Father, we come to you this morning and many of us are not rejoicing. We feel the burden of guilt and shame and fear. We feel we are in the midst of the crisis where the wine has run out, the celebration has ended. And we hope and we pray, God, that Jesus would intervene. Pray for people who might not know you this morning, that they would come and you would welcome them to the feast, the feast of your love, of your forgiveness. I pray, God, for those of us who are in a journey where we feel like we're in crisis, God, that you would weave all of these strands that seem so disparate in our lives together. Help us to trust you. Help us to know that your best things always are last. 
Help us to rejoice in the love that Jesus has for us. Help us to know ourselves as people who are loved. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.